Well, as I said a moment ago, we've been working our way through the book of Genesis. And this week I've really wrestled with uh, teaching Genesis chapter 5. I've loved the the chapters that we've been through because they've been so practical. You can apply it to your life and you can wrestle with things in your life. But today is one of those chapters that as we share this, many people skip over. But as we share this, I I wrestled with it because this chapter is not going to help you save your marriage. And it's not going to help you uh, do dating better. It's not going to help you find the right spouse, and it's not going to help you change your finances around, but what this chapter is going to do today is going to be um, just an amazing Bible study, at least I think, about the amazingness of God's Word and what it is that He's been doing over the past few thousand years. Now, if you come to Calvary Chapel, you kind of expect that you're going to have a Bible study, right? So are you okay with us having an actual Bible study then today and looking at God's Word and and, uh, just studying some things and maybe even taking sort of a, maybe what you might say a more academic approach? Will you let me do that today? And you'll stay with me as we do this? Good. Okay, well, first of all, I'm going to begin with a perspective as we get into this. There on your outline, it was Jesus who said this, and this is kind of the starting part, uh, the starting point for how we see the Bible and why we would study the Bible in this way. Jesus said this, Jesus said, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth shall pass away, not the smallest, and if you're underlining, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. It's interesting, Jesus refers to the law, that's typically the first five books of the Bible. Uh, You can expand that and say the entire Old Testament. But you you, you notice he says, not the smallest letter or stroke. And here's what he's saying. He's saying that every dotting of the I and every crossing of the T, if they were writing in English, everything there is by design. And that's important because some people would say that the Bible contains the message of God, but not every word is inspired. Where Jesus comes along and says, hey, it's every, every, small, every small letter, every part of the letter, every stroke of the letter, it's all there by design. And this was so uh, part of the Jewish culture early on thousands of years ago that when they would take the Bible and they would make a copy of the Old Testament, they would begin by, first of all, writing. They would have one sheet of, of the manuscript. They would write the next sheet, but they would go through, after they checked every word, they would have a certain, le- a certain number of words and a certain number of letters. And then they would have to go through to make sure that every number of the words matched up. That is, if you had 3,347 words on this sheet after they read it and made sure there were no, no errors, they would come back and they would then count this sheet to make sure that it was accurate, that it was exact. And then they'd count the letters and make sure that the number of the letters were right because they, they, they held that the, the translation or, or the making of a copy was such a high thing. They didn't want to have any mistakes whatsoever. And so they would do that. Now, God in his word, and this isn't part of your outline, this is just an interesting thing that you may have heard, may not have heard, but God in his word was so concerned that we would have exact translations that he put in his word, an interesting code, where if you change a word, you lose the code. You might not know this, but the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, is called the law or the Torah. How many of you knew that? You knew that. Good. Did you know that in the first two books of the Bible, Genesis and Exodus, if you begin in Hebrew in the original manuscripts and you begin that as you go every 50 letters, 
every 50 letters, you come to the first 50, and there's a letter, you go 49, you come to the next, next one's 50, you go 49, come to the next one's 50. All the way through Genesis and Exodus, every 50 letters spells the word Torah as you go through. So if we were doing this in English, it'd be T, and then you go 49 letters, and then the 50th would be O, and then the next one would be, and all the way through without fail. All the way through Genesis and Exodus, the word Torah is spelled every 50 letters. Now, how many of you knew that? Without fail. Well, did you know that you skip over Leviticus and you come to the next two books, which would be the last two books of the law, which would be Numbers and Deuteronomy, that the same word Torah is spelled every 50 letters. However, in this case, it's not spelled going this way. It's spelled going the opposite direction. That is, you have the first two books of the Bible saying Torah, every 50 letters, pointing to the middle book. Then you have the next two books spelling Torah, but it's pointing back to the middle book. It's coming in and it's going Torah, every 50 letters. What do you think in the book of Leviticus, every 50th letter spells? Yahweh, all the way through the entire book. Now, you change the translation. You make a mistake in any of the manuscripts or copies, and all of a sudden, that doesn't work. You see, God has gone to great lengths to make sure that there's a code inside of God's word, but also to let us know when something would be gone awry because all of a sudden you would have something that just doesn't add up. God's word is absolutely amazing. Now, how many of you have ever heard that before? It's a fascinating thing. You can get a number of books on Bible codes. Some of them are a little bit hokey, but this is one that, that's been corroborated many, many times. And, and so uh, that's just a, a fascinating thing that causes me to look at this book and say, you know, there's something really amazing about this book. Well, how inspired is the Bible? Well, notice what Jesus says. There in your outline, it says, Jesus answered and said, it is written that man shall not live on bread alone, but on, and with your pen, underline every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You see, it was Jesus who believed that God's word proceeded, as he says, out of the mouth of God. If you've ever heard somebody say that scripture is God-breathed, it comes from the viewpoint that Jesus had that every word, every single word of scripture is something that God breathed. Now, let me ask you a question. Jesus felt that He believed that scripture was so inspired that every word was God-breathed, right? How inspired do you think scripture is? Do you believe that it's every word? And that's just a question that you have to ask yourself. And I stand with Jesus in believing that every word is there by design. Now, having said that, the Apostle Paul said there in your outline, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. So we read back in the Old Testament and we say, you know, we don't know what this is really all about, but we know this, that Paul says, Paul told us it was written there for our instruction. That is, those of us who are New Testament believers, it's written for us. I love this verse from Hosea, and you've heard me use it before, but, but God says this. He says, I have also spoken by the prophets. I have multiplied visions and have used similitudes. I love that word similitudes. Underline that word similitudes. By the ministry of the prophets. Well, we all know what visions are. Those are kind of like, you know, you're, you see something and uh, you get an idea or, you know, God gives you a vision. But what in the world is a similitude? A similitude is simply a word picture. 
God will at times tell us a story in the Bible, but he's really painting a deeper spiritual picture. And God says, I have used at times similitudes. Now that's going to be important for us because God paints these pictures through these words. In Genesis chapter 5, we come to a genealogy. And I'm going to suggest to you that this genealogy would be a word picture. It is a similitude. I believe that because Jesus says, you know, every word is there by design. God says he uses similitudes. He's painting a picture. And also, I would have to ask myself, why would God take an entire chapter to just give us this genealogy if there's not something there that he would want us to learn. So I'm going to approach this from the perspective that there's something here that God wants us to know, to learn, and to understand. What I'm going to share with you, I'll be very upfront and tell you that not everybody agrees with this. Not everybody agrees with me. And, uh, you know, so you, I'll lay out the evidence and you look at it and you see if there's something here that God might be saying to you. Okay. Like you mean it. Okay, because I get insecure. Now, you'll recall that in Genesis chapter 1, God creates everything. He says it's good. As a matter of fact, he says it's very good. In Genesis chapter 2, he creates man and woman, Adam and Eve, brings them together, puts them in the garden. He says it's very good. Genesis chapter 3, man and woman alone in the garden. All of a sudden, things aren't so good. Things become bad. Genesis, and you, you know the story, we went through it. They eat the, the fruit, and then, then you'll recall the kicked out of the garden. Next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, things become very bad. The children of Adam and Eve become less than what they had hoped for. Cain kills Abel. We looked at that last week. So then we come to chapter 5, and I believe that what God is saying in chapter 5, God says, okay, we started off good, things are getting pretty bad. So before we go any further, any further at all, I need to lay out a picture of what I'm doing. And so I'm going to take an entire chapter, I'm going to put some words in it, and I want you to take this picture and you meditate on it, and, uh, and, and uh, so we can, you know, and this picture is going to cover a couple of thousand years. Now, in this picture, we're going to see a couple of things. First of all, we're going to, in this genealogy, it's going to say, man is born, has a couple of kids, then he dies. Man is born, has a couple of kids, then he dies. Eight times, guy's born, has some kids, and he dies. One guy's not going to die. That's going to be an interesting thing. Also, to let you know that this genealogy is every one of our family histories. We, somehow, some way, come from this genealogy. Uh, because this genealogy is going to wind up with Noah. And every one of us are a descendant of Noah. And uh, so this is your great-great-grandfather. So this is going to be like some, some family history there. So I don't know what that does for you, but uh, that's interesting to me. All right, you ready? Verse 1. Verses 1 and 2, a little bit of our family history, says, This is the book, underline that, of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Man's made in the likeness of God. You might want to underline that. Man made in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. He blessed them and named them, my translation says man, your translation might say he named them Adam. If your translation says he named them man, it probably has a little one or something pointing you to the outline or to the, uh, the, the column that just tells you that he meant Adam in the, in the day when they were created. So God has created man and woman. And in verse two, it says something very interesting. I put it there in your outline. Uh, more of a literal rendition, and it says, male and female created he them and blessed them, now underline this, and called their name Adam. Did everybody see that? 
in the day when they were created. Now, the reason that that's important is the word Adam and man is the same Hebrew word. When you see the word man in, in Hebrew, it's simply the word Adam. And so when you see Adam, it says man. So sometimes it'll translate it as man. Sometimes it'll translate it as Adam. Same Hebrew word. We covered that. Now, notice in the King James Version, he says he called their name Adam, man and woman. Everybody, you see that, right? Now, why is that so important? How many of you ladies here, you got married and now you have somebody else's last name? Now, where did that come from? It comes from the Christian understanding of this verse. That is way back when, as Bible scholars looked at this, they says, well, it's interesting. He created them, Adam and Eve, but in Genesis chapter 5, verse 2, it says, but God called them Adam, or of the man's name. He didn't call them Adam and Eve. He called them a family name, and the family name was Adam using the man's name. And ever since that, whenever we do a wedding, and, and it's certainly not just um, you know in, in, in our church, but many churches and most churches, they'll say at the end of the wedding, may I present to you Mr. and Mrs., and they always say the guy's name. And uh, that comes from this verse because God early on referred to the family but used the man's name. That makes sense? It's not to offend you if you're a feminist. It's just kind of where it comes from. So um, then notice in verse 1, it says, this is the book of generations. Now, why is this important? Well, early on, as Adam and Eve were having kids and those kids had kids, they had what you and I would call the oral tradition. Nobody was writing anything down. And, and so there came a point, probably after Noah, after all of these people are, are gone, that they had memorize these names. These names tell us a picture, a story. And at some point, somebody says, we need to write this down. And so when Moses is writing this portion of the Bible, the law in Genesis, he's written the first four chapters, but then he says, but this is the book. That tells us, and the word book is also the word scroll. It's just in our language, we would say book, they would say scroll. So apparently there was a scroll where somebody wrote these names down, which they felt were important enough to remember so that whenever Moses comes to this part, he says, you know, we need to put this in under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We need to put this in. And he says, but there was a scroll. There was a book that they had. And so this scroll predates the, uh, what you and I would have as the Old Testament. Does that make sense so far? Okay, verses 3 through 5, our picture begins. It says, it says, When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in, and I want you to underline, his own likeness. His own likeness. Now, God made Adam and Eve in God's likeness. Adam and Eve are going to create children in their likeness. We'll talk about that in a moment. He says he made a, had a son in his own likeness according to his image, and he named him Seth. You might want to underline Seth. And the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So, so Adam lives about 800 years after, um, after he has Seth. Um, I'm now 45, and people say, you know, the 40s are the best. They're just the best, you know. And back then, they'd say, you know, the 500s, they're just the best, you know. And uh, so I, I hope I don't live that, that long. But it's interesting that, that the word Adam, we've seen and we've looked at this, but the word Adam simply means what? 
Man, that's all it means. Uh, so write that down where it says Adam. It just means man. And male and female, he created them and blessed them and called their name Adam. And other translation says he called them man. Why? It's the same Hebrew. It's the same Hebrew word. And you notice that, that, that he has Seth and Seth is now in Adam's image. Adam was created in God's image. That is without a sin nature. But then Adam sinned. Now everybody else is going to be created in Adam's image, that is, you and I all have a sin nature. If you don't believe it, just have a two-year-old. Do you have to tell them to tell the truth, or do you have to tell them how to lie? Why don't they just automatically tell the truth if man is basically good because of the sin nature? And when their back's against the wall, they'll look at you with crumbs all over them and say, I didn't eat it. So, (laughs) not my kid, but your kids, obviously, so my kids would never do that. My kids lead the charge. So the first, the first word there is Adam. Then Adam, verses 6 through 8, it says, Seth, that's his son, lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. Right, underline Enosh and Seth. And Seth, Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh. And he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. So 912 years and he died. Now it's interesting to me that the word Seth is just simply the Hebrew word for appointed. So write that word down, appointed. As a matter of fact, we see that in the last chapter. Um, Notice what Eve told us. And I put it there in your outline. In Genesis 4.25, says, And Adam knew his wife again and bare a son. She called his name Seth. We would say Sheth. For God said, she hath appointed sheath, appointed a sheath, me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And so, so as you look at this, if you were to look in a, in a Bible dictionary and you pull up Seth's name, Seth is going to say it comes from this other Hebrew word, sheath, which is just simply appointed. That's all it means. So Seth means appointed. That makes sense so far? So you have man appointed. Once again, a guy who lives, has a few kids, then he dies. Verses 9 through 11, it says, Enosh lived 90 years and became the father of Kenan. Then Enosh lived 815 years after he became the father of Kenan, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Now that's interesting to me because the word Enosh, if you have a strong concordance, you just click on Enosh, and here's the word that comes up. I put it there in your outline. And, and Enosh, we, in the Hebrew, it would be more like Enosh, you know, something like that. And it comes from a primary uh, root word, and it just means a mortal, a mortal. And uh, so Enosh just means um, mortal. Write that down, mortal. So, so far in our picture, we have man appointed mortal. Man appointed mortal. So far, everything's been very straightforward as far as the definitions go. Uh, Names were given because they were giving a meaning when they would have a child back then. And even in the later on, and even now when people have a child, they try to give a child with a, with a name that has a certain meaning. If you've ever seen the old shows of the Indians, you know, they'll talk about the Indian name and it has a specific meaning and it has to do with the characteristic of what's going on in the life of that child. So let's see how our story goes. But so far, very straightforwardly, we have man appointed mortal. Anybody here not mortal today? Verses 12 through 14. 
Then Canaan lived 70 years and became the father of Mahalalel. Say that 10 times fast. Verse 13, then Kenan lived 840 years after he became the father of Mahalalel and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. Now that's interesting because uh, Kenan is an interesting name and there's some debate about this. There's actually two possibilities of what this word can mean from its, the, from its original root and both possibilities are very cool. Um, first of all, there in your outline, you have the word Kenan there, which is how they would say that name in the original language, Canaan. And some say that it comes from the root word Ken, Q-E-N, which just means fixed. And so I want you to write down in the space fixed. Just uh, don't take up all the room. We're going to write something else. Now, when it says fixed, you have to say, well, what's the context of this? It's fixed in the sense that it can't be changed and it can't be moved. Okay, this building is for the most part fixed. You just don't pick it up and move it. It's fixed. It's not that something was broken and has been repaired. That's not the fix that it's talking about. It's fixed in the sense that it can't be moved. It's kind of, you know, it's, it's a given. Uh, it's, it, it's fixed in the sense that somebody were to say you have a terminal illness. When they say terminal, what they're saying is you can't change it. And so it's, it's fixed in the sense that it can't be changed, which would be interesting because then our story would say man is appointed mortal and that's fixed. You can't change it, which is important because in the New Age movement and other religions, they will say you can become God. But God early on said, no, man is appointed mortal. It's fixed. It's fixed. It doesn't change. So now there is another possibility of this word, which gives for some interesting discussion. And it comes from the uh, difference in the understanding of the root. And uh, some commentaries point to Numbers 24, 21 through 23. You can look that up later. But they would say, no, the root there is kun, Q-U-W-N, which is also a primary root. Now, one of the things you have to understand about the Hebrew language, the Hebrew language only gives you the consonants. It doesn't give you the vowels. And so when there's debate, it's about which vowel goes in, and, and then that determines the word. So there's a little bit of debate. Now, this word Q-N, Q-U-W-N, uh, talks about being at a funeral and it, it's lamenting, it's mourning. And, and, uh, and so others would say that this word from the root means sorrow. So write sorrow in the blank also. So it could be man-appointed mortal sorrow, or it could be man is appointed mortal, and that's fixed. Either way is true, and either way both fit the picture, and both make for some interesting discussion. Picture interesting so far? Okay, let's go on. Verses 15 through 17. Then we come to a guy. It says, Mahalel lived 65 years, is starting to have kids pretty young here, and became the father of Jared, or they would say Yerid. And Mahalel lived 830 years after he became the father of Yerid, or Jared. And he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalel were 895 years, and he died. So there you have it. Now that's an interesting thing because Mahalel, El, is two Hebrew words that come together. And uh, I've put them there on your outline. You can see, um, and I, I, I ran out of space, so I had to take some of this out, but you can look this up. The first word is Halel, which simply means praise. 
praise. And uh, so you hear of some of the psalms, and they'll be called the halal song, psalms because they're praise psalms. It's just the Hebrew word for praise. It can also be blessed. Uh, you can also use the word as blessed. El, at the end of the word, El is the Hebrew name for God. Okay, so this word quite literally means the praise of God. The praise of God. And so some suggest that it could also mean um, not just the praise of God, but the blessed God. And uh, we do that in our language. We'll tack an L, an E-L on the back of a name and it changes the meaning. My, my name is Daniel. Daniel. And so Dan is the Hebrew word for judged. L is the word for God. And so it can either mean that um, God is my judge and, or it can mean that I judge like God or with the judgment of God. But you have Dan, which is judge, and then El, which is from God. It comes from the Hebrew. So this name, Mahalel, praise El, is just simply the praise of God. So hopefully you've written that down. And this is one of those words where there's really not a lot of debate. Except that you can expand that to say the praise of God. You could also equally translate that as the blessed God. The blessed God. But I'll just take the most um, common usage of the word. Make sense so far? Okay. So then you come to verses 18 through 20. Verses 18 through 20, and it says, Jared lived 162 years and became the father of Enoch. Then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Once again, just showing the mortality of man. You know, guy is born, has a little space in between, has a couple of kids, and ultimately he dies. And uh, so this is an interesting word. Because some, for some reason, Mahalel El, decides to name his kid Jared. And uh, we would say in Hebrew, Yirid, there's no J in Hebrew, so J always becomes Y. Not that you care, but you can impress your friends at parties. So Yirid in the Hebrew comes from a root word. It just, it's a primitive root that just means to descend, or literally to go downwards or come down. And uh, the other thing that you don't get from, from that, but you need to know, this is a verb. This is something, somebody's doing something in this. And uh, so you might want to write down uh, the name of Jared is shall come down, shall come down. Now let's look at our picture real quick, even before we go any further, just looking at the very common uses of the names. And here's the story so far. Man is appointed Mortal, that's fixed, or sorrow. But the praise of God, or the blessed God, shall come down. Anybody see a picture developing here? There in Genesis chapter 5? So we go on. Now, um, shall, come, shall come down. Okay, so... Um, Then we come to Genesis uh, verses 21 through 24, and it says, Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Now, how many of you have ever heard of Methuselah? Okay, so good. Uh, The oldest guy in the Bible. There's a reason why this guy is particularly the oldest guy in the Bible, and we're going to see why God chooses to have him live uh, 969 years. Then Enoch, and you're going to want to underline, I'll start at 21 again. You're going to want to underline a couple of things. 
Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch, underline, walked with God. Now, when the Bible tells you something once, you take notice. But when the Bible tells you something twice, you say, you're telling us something. You want us to draw our attention here. So he says he walked with God 300 years and became the father of Methuselah. And he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch, underline this, walked with God... And he was not, underline this, for God took him. For God took him. So Enoch, interesting, the word Enoch comes from a Hebrew root. It's a primitive root there in your outline. It means to initiate. It means to discipline. But as you look at that word from the Hebrew, we can kind of lose that. Because when you think of disciplining your kids, you think about spanking them. And that's not the idea. And so in the King James, it would take the same word and it would translate it dedicate or to train up. That is, it's disciplining in the sense that it's growing somebody, not spanking them. It's kind of just helping them grow up. Now, and the, the idea is that many Bible translators say it, it's, it's training or dedicating them to come up. And they would say the English synonym for this word is simply teaching, is what we do. So why don't you write that word down, teaching? And uh, you can... Um, refer back to dedicate and train up and uh, to initiate. And so that's what you're doing. Now, so, so far. So Enoch is a picture of something in the Bible. We're told two, two times that Enoch walked with God. Now, why is that so important? Well, in the New Testament, something else is going on here in the Old Testament that the New Testament tells us about that we'd miss. In the New Testament, Jude writes about Enoch, and he says there in your outline, he says, the first prophet, which tells you something about Enoch, he's the first prophet. Now, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute what? Now, underline the word judgment to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among, among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way. So you, see, you know, he uses ungodly a lot. And of all the harsh things which the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now underline the word him. Okay, so here, here's what he's doing. He's prophesying about the ungodly, He's going to use the word ungodly four times. And then he's going to execute judgment of all who speak against him. Who's the him that he's talking about? He's talking about God. That's what he's talking about. So you might want to make a little note. So here's what's going on. Here we find that Enoch is a prophet. Enoch's prophecy as he's going around, his prophecy is about a coming judgment. Write that down. It's about a coming judgment. You and I will know that judgment as the flood of Noah, which is going to occur in the next chapter. But the chapter is going to end with Noah. He's talking about a judgment that's coming on the ungodly. And part of their ungodliness is they just say bad things about God. Uh, and and so, so why is that so important? Because this judgment or the flood of Noah 
would not be, and write this down, a surprise. Because Enoch has been talking about this for quite some time. And uh, although it's not going to take place for another thousand years or so. But I also want you to notice something that the Bible tells us that this one who is a prophet, before that judgment comes, verse 24, it says, he was not for God took him. And you just notice that before this judgment ultimately comes, God does something. He reaches down and takes this one who is alive and he pulls him out. And so before judgment, before judgment, the one who walked with God, and he tells us twice, is removed. So write that down. It's an interesting picture. It'll be important for your entire study of the Bible. But before judgment comes, God will reach down and pull the one that walked with God out. So they would begin to say, when he's walking around saying judgment is coming, they would say, Enoch, when is this judgment coming? When is it going to happen? You know, tell us when. And, uh, and uh, he would say, you know, you won't know the day or the hour that this judgment comes. But I'm going to give you um, a clue as to when you can expect this to take place. And the clue will be the name of my son. My son's name? Well, Methuselah. Methuselah. Now, what does Methuselah mean? Well, you've got to dig to the roots of the word a little bit. But you have Methuselah is actually how it's uh, translated. Muth is simply uh, the word, a primary root that just means to die. And it can be literal or figurative. It can mean to kill. Um, but that's the first part. And Shalak is simply a primary wor- wor- root word uh, to send away for or out in a great variety of applications. Let me give you an application. This word shalak is used in a verse uh, that we'll come to in a few weeks. There in your outline, it says, Then Abraham went to bring, and I want you to underline the word to bring, and the word simply to bring is just shalak, to bring them on the way. So, muth means death, and then shalak means um, to bring. So, Methuselah, his dad's given the prophecy, when's, when's this judgment going to come? And he says, well, I'll name my son, Methuselah, Muth Shalak, simply means his death shall bring. His death shall bring. Now, why is that so important? Well, it's important because from this point where Methuselah is born, and you want to write this down, God will give 969 years of mercy before judgment. 969 years they have this prophecy in front of them and, and, and various ones are coming along and saying, hey, you know, um, in the year that Muth Shalak dies, that's when this happens. This is an event that we can all point to. His death shall bring and uh, that's when it's going to happen. It's interesting to me because Enoch doesn't say, I'll tell you the exact date, but I'll tell you there's some things that you can certainly look at. When my boy starts looking old and he gets a cough, watch out, watch out. And uh, so you can bet. Now, that's interesting because, you know, you and I live in a day where God said judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. It's really coming. And if I know anything in the world, I know this, that judgment is coming. But you see, in that day and as this day, and I don't want to get too emotional, but in that day as in this day, because God gave so much time of grace, people became very casual, very casual. And on the day that judgment came, there were only eight people 
that were spared from that judgment. And, and they had it for a thousand years that it's coming, but it didn't come fast. And so people became casual. Friends, that same judgment is coming again. And we've been warned. Notice uh, what Peter says there in your outline. He says, the Lord's not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But because God waited so long, people became lax about his coming. They became lax about the judgment that was going to come. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, if you do the math on this, and uh, some of you have Bibles that have done this, but if you do the math, the year that Methuselah dies is the year that, that Noah goes into the ark. And his death shall bring. His death shall bring. Now, later on, God's going to give another sign. He's going to come to Noah. And he's going to say, Noah, I want you to do something nobody's ever done. I want you to build a big box, an ark, in the middle of the desert. And man has 120 years and the clock is ticking. They have the prophecy from Enoch about Methuselah. Methuselah's getting pretty old. And, and Noah, you've got 120 years and judgment's coming. And people wouldn't listen. So Methuselah, interesting, just a little bit of Bible trivia. Methuselah is born in about the year 687 after things get going. Now you go, why is that important? Well, Adam still is going to be alive for another 300 years. So there's a lot of overlap when you do the math. Is that interesting to anybody? Okay. Verses 28 through 31, it says, um, um, Lamech lived 182... Methuselah, verse 25, let me go. Or did I do that? No, I did that. I did that. That was Methuselah. Verse 20, I'm sorry. Verse 28, Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now, he called his name Noah, saying, this one will give us, and underline that next word. Some of your Bibles will say rest. How many of your Bibles say rest? And how many of your Bibles say comfort? Comfort, okay. Um, So some of your Bibles say rest. Some of your Bibles say comfort. Now, he called his name Noah, which is just noach from the Hebrew. And you got to put that so you sound smart. Saying, this one will give us noach essentially, from our work and from our toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Then Lamech lived 595 years and after became the father of Noah, he had other, he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. Now, the, the name Lamech um, here is in, in the Hebrew from Hitchcock's Bible Dictionary. Um, Lamech just means poor. It means to be made low. Uh, I'm going to suggest to you another word that, that describes what we've just read. It would be despairing. It's laid low in the sense that, you know, it's a heavy burden. There's no hope. Um, you know, it's, it's poor emotionally. It's just despairing. That makes sense? Okay, good. Uh, so that's his name. Now, in verse 32, it says, now Noah was 500 years old. And Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, very quickly, uh, uh, Shem, how many of you have ever heard of somebody being anti-Semitic? 
Well, we would say anti-Shemitic because Noah is the father of Shem who becomes the Shemites. We would say the Semites or Semitic. And so that would be the people who move towards the area of the Middle East that we would call Israel. And so when we say anti-Semitic, we're saying anti-Shemitic. And then you'll notice that he has also Shem, Ham, and we'll see in a couple of chapters that that's the group that moved more down towards Africa. And then Japheth is going to move more towards uh, Europe after the flood. So interesting, Lamech's name is despairing, but Noah's name is just simply the Hebrew word for rest, rest. Now, some of your translations will read in um, verse 32, um, Actually, um, verse 29, real quick. Some will, will say, he called his name Noah, saying this one will give us rest. It's just the Hebrew word, Noach. And then some of, or, or Nakam, just, which is Noah comes from Nakam. And then some will say comfort. And so Noah can be translated as, as either rest or comfort. And that's just the meaning of the, the word in its original. So why is that so important? Well, it's interesting to me that God in Genesis chapter 5, lays out a number of words, and those words have specific meanings. I mean, one of the meanings of the the words is just simply to come down. How many of you would name one of your kids to come down? Or get off the ladder, something like that. We wouldn't do that. But these names were given to, to bring us to a specific understanding that would be passed down orally. At a certain point, they would write them down. They would be included in the Bible because they felt it was so important. God felt it was so important. I believe it's a message for you and I. And here's the message. There on your outline in the box, man is appointed, mortal, that could be fixed, or sorrow, mortal sorrow. But the praise of God or the blessed God shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest or comfort. Man is appointed mortal. Mortal sorrow or mortal fixed, you can't change it. But the praise of God or the blessed God shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. You know, early on, God had figured out what to do for man's condition. And so in Genesis chapter 5, God says, one of the first things I need to do is lay out for you what's going to take place. You see, it was in the garden as Adam and Eve sinned that God had to take the skin of an animal. God had to literally slaughter an animal. And as he slaughtered that animal for the first time, Adam and Eve, they saw death. And they saw what it looked like. And God said, you will surely die. And they knew that was coming. And so, but God said, there will come from the seed of the woman. And for those of you who've been part of our Bible study, you'll recall that that. Eve thought that she would be the one to give birth to what we would call the seed of the woman, and she gives birth to Cain. It's not Cain. And, and as mankind goes on, it gets worse and worse. And early on, God says, you know, somebody has to have this message early on of what I'm going to try or what I'm going to accomplish so that you will understand. He says, so here, here's my message. He says, man is appointed mortal. Every one of us is mortal. It's fixed. You can't change it no matter who tells you that you can become God or become like a God, God says, it's not going to happen. You're mortal. It's fixed. Mortal sorrow. And that's our condition. But the good news is this. The praise of God or the blessed God will come down, teaching that his death 
shall bring the despairing rest or peace. You see, it's his death, and that's the gospel. His death on the cross paid the price that Adam and Eve watched in the garden as they saw their sin and how serious God took it, that something had to die. And for the first time, they saw that animal shrieking. And they saw what what sin did, that sin brought death. And you see, our condition is we're mortal, yes, and we're despairing because we really have no hope. But the good news is this, that the blessed God or the praise of God came down. And he taught us that his death will give you and I who are despairing. We have no hope outside of him. There's no other path to salvation. There's no other opportunity to have a relationship with God. That's the message. But he would bring us rest and comfort. Let me tell you about that rest. It's a rest where once you become his child, you never have to worry again about your relationship with God. My kids never worry about maintaining their pluredness. They are because they've been born into this family. And nothing can undo that. It just is. And so the message for you today is simply this, that his death has come to bring you peace and rest. And it was so important that you get this message that he laid it out in Genesis chapter 5 before we go any further with all the strange things we're going to see. He says, I want you to get this right up front. It's his death and ultimately his resurrection. His paying for your sin brings you peace and rest with God. Does that make sense? Then let's go ahead and close in prayer. And I'm going to ask Jeff to come out. And uh, very simply, I'm just going to pray a prayer. And right now, if, if you're here today, I hope, I hope, first of all, that you've walked away going, you know, there's something to this book. Anybody come up with that today? Now, you can go home and do the research. Uh, you, you'll find different, different people will, will disagree over the various roots of words. And so you might have to dig between a couple of commentaries or dictionaries to come up with this. So sometimes there's, there's some debate. But I, for, for me, I think it's, it's all very clear. But here's the thing. If you're here today and you've never invited Jesus Christ into your life, I, I just want to say that it's his death on the cross that's going to bring you hope. See, right now, whatever your situation is in life, and whatever you're facing, whether it's a job loss or divorce, or whether it's uh, problems in, in your family, finances, your health, your answer ultimately is Jesus Christ. And that's the starting point. And you have to settle that. And it's very simply, there's not even a prayer in the Bible because if there was, we'd take it and we'd use it. We'd turn it into a ritual. But at some point, you just look at him and you say, Jesus, I don't understand everything, but, but I've seen some things that are pretty incredible. And here's what I'd like to do. I just want to begin. And so come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. I don't fully understand the whole death thing, but whatever it is, I want it. You know, we've, we've had a few kids come into our family over the past few years, and it's so interesting to see them be born into our family. You know, they have no clue what they've been born into. They have no idea how it works out. They just know that something's different. They were in mommy, they're not in mommy. And things are vastly different. And I want to invite you today just to simply turn to him and say, yes, I, whatever this is, I want it. I want to be part of your family. And as you do that, the Bible says you're born again. And as you're born again, you won't have it all figured out. 
You'll never have it all figured out, but you'll be born again. And now you're part of the family. And then God says, now we go to work on everything else. The marriage, the finances, the health, the everything else. But this has to be settled first. Does that make sense? So I'm going to pray, and in your own way, you pray also. And then Jeff will just simply close us out with, with, uh, with a song. Heavenly Father, for each and every person here today, Lord, we have no idea how amazing your word truly is. And, and so, Lord, I pray that today, in just some small way, you've at least given us a glimpse of how great uh, it really is and how far-reaching and how amazing the things are that you've placed inside of your, your word for us to, to dig up and to mine and to ponder and to mull over. Father, I pray for the person who would be here today who came in maybe wanting to, um, maybe for the first time in a long time to reconnect with you or, or maybe the one who's here who's never really embraced you in a, in a deep way where you've actually come into their life where they've given themselves to you, where you've washed them clean of their sins. And so, Father, for those who are here today, we just ask you that, that your spirit would be so real and so loud inside of them that they would know that, God, that you are real, that, Jesus, you are the way, and that whatever you have for them, that they want. And I pray that by your spirit, you are speaking that. And, Lord, for each of us today, Jesus, we just say, for those of us who are, who are on the fence, come into our lives. Forgive us of our sins. Wash us clean. We desire to be born again into your family. We give ourselves to you and we pray that you would take this life and make it everything that you designed it to be. We've done it on our own. We've come to the place where we realize that we need you. And I thank you for this congregation, for their love for your word, their love for you. And I pray that you would give guidance and a special sense of your spirit this week for each and every one of us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.